0: What makes your heart race? Is it the sight of a loved one returning home after many weeks or months or even years away, walking up the driveway, home for the holidays, home for the first time in a long time? Can you feel your heart race even just a little in this moment? What makes your heart race? Is it, the, is it just going home at the end of a long day, knowing there's someone whose face will give you joy when you see them as you walk in the door? What makes your heart race? Is it sometimes a, a sense of anger or frustration or, or upset? How many of you have had a conversation like this with a child? One, A child who, when they were younger, loved you and admired you and thought you were the king of all things or the queen of all things only when they enter into young adulthood around 13 or 14 or 15 to suddenly think you know no thing and they just argue and fight about every single thing. Have you had that? Does your heart race in those moments? And maybe, let's flip the coin on the other side too, What's, what was it like when you were 14 or 15, or even if you're that age right now, to sometimes be challenged by your parents in a way that feels terribly unfair? Does your heart race in those moments too? Sometimes it's love that moves our hearts and cause them to beat quickly. Sometimes it's anger or frustration Sometimes it's fear as well. A sense of danger can cause our heart rate to increase. I was taught in kindergarten to be careful crossing the street. I was taught to always look to the left first and then to look to the right. And if it was safe and clear, and there was an adult you trust, your parent, one of your parents, or a school teacher, then you could walk out into the crosswalk and make your way to the other side. A few years ago, I was at the end of a mission trip in South Africa. Do you know this about South Africa, by the way? Which side of the road do they drive on? No, the wrong side. (laughs) Not the left, the wrong. It was the end of a mission trip. We'd been there 16 days. We were eating lunch on our way to the airport. The two vans that we'd rented to take us to, to our flight, our long flight, returning to the United States, were across the street. We were over to the edge of the, of the sidewalk, and I did like I'm, I've been taught all my life since I was in kindergarten. I looked to the left. Simultaneously, because I'm an impatient person, I began stepping into the uh, street, looking to the left, which was clear, of course, which was clear, and then as I looked to the right, again, almost all simultaneously at the same time, I saw a a truck coming that felt like it was about five feet away. It was really probably more like 30 or 40, but it was moving very fast, and again, simultaneously at the same time that all these things are happening, my friend John Barnes, who was the missionary leading our trip, he grabbed me by the back of my sweatshirt and pulled me back onto the curb. And the bus went right in front of my face. Uh, The truck went right in front of my face. I looked at John and said, thank you, John, and he said, you know, most of us would be upset if you got killed by a truck. (laughs) And I said, most of us? (laughs) We've known since the beginning of time, especially in moments of danger, that our hearts race. Maybe we evolved eventually that way, but there's a sense of a, a, a thrust of adrenaline just runs through our bodies if we feel like we're in danger. And it's not just in danger. It can be in a moment of love. It can be in a moment of anger. Sometimes those things are all mixed together. Isaiah speaks a word to people whose hearts are racing. Did you hear what he said? Say to those, as an instruction for Sarah and Tim and me and preachers like us, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Biblical scholar Anathea Portier Young, and I might be mispronouncing her name, Professor Anathea says that the phrase translated as fearful hearts literally means those whose hearts are racing. Isaiah wants us to know that oftentimes when the gathered community is together, our hearts are racing. Our hearts are racing for a variety of reasons. Isaiah's audience was in exile. They were far away from home. They just wanted to finally come home, to have that sense of being at home. In the, in the many ways, oh, we're not necessarily in exile, literally, but metaphorically, how many of us feel as though we've been lost, or we're suffering through loss, or we've been pushed aside and, and let, let down? Isaiah's words was clear. What was true is no longer going to be true. It's sometimes called the great reversal. Those with weak hands and feeble knees, which at age 64 I'm noticing more and more and more these days, those with weak hands and feeble knees will be made strong. The lame will leap like a deer. The blind will see. The hungry will be fed. It's a marvelous promise. Those who have been wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, where there is no way will finally find a way, a holy way. And that way will lead them home. Home to the place where they are redeemed, restored, renewed. These promises are spoken as a way of inviting us to understand that God plans to do this for all of God's children, no matter who they are, where they are from. All of God's children will be accepted on the highway, the holy highway of God, redeemed, renewed, restored. By the way, I looked up all again this week. It still means all. A beautiful promise an amazing thing and yet it's good news we could call it the gospel of Isaiah and yet the people hearing this have their hearts race there seems to be some fear at work why is that the truth is and you know this any change even a longed-for, yearned-for, prayed-for change can bring, can bring stress. In some ways, the people may have gotten used to being in exile. They may have gotten used to whatever patterns of life they had, and they're just comfortable in that, fine. It's really, I don't want to, I don't need to go, no, I've, just, I've gotten used to this. Please don't change it at all. Change, even good change, sometimes comes with overwhelming stress. When Julie and I were 28 years old, we decided it was time to have a baby. We'd been married for eight years. I I don't recommend getting married at the age of 20, by the way. We we made it through some rocky waters there. I'd finished seminary, had a full-time job, healthcare and all the rest, and so it was time. Let's bring a child into this world. But it was difficult. There were some issues to face. It didn't happen right away. We were concerned about Julie's health. There was a miscarriage, sadness, sorrow, fear, until one day, three years later, she was pregnant again. We got to the three-month mark and the six-month mark and the nine-month mark, and all the reports were that this boy, we knew he was a boy, was healthy and strong. On the day he was born, we agreed that he would be named Nathaniel. Nathaniel is, is a combination of Hebrew words, Natan, which literally means gift, and El, which is another name for God. Gift of God. He was an answer to prayer, something we'd prayed for, yearned for, longed for. It was a beautiful day, a beautiful moment. And when they, when they brought him to me, he looked like this beautifully wrapped baby burrito. It was just amazing to see him. You've seen a newborn, you know, they're just wrapped tightly in in, in the blanket, and they've got a little hat on their head, and his face was perfect, he was gorgeous, and I held him on my arms, and in that moment, my only thought was, oh, my God, what do I do now? I was filled with joy and fear and, frankly, a little bit of sadness in that moment. My heart was beating and pounding. Because even though we'd wanted him forever, I realized, maybe it took a few days or weeks, but I realized our lives were changed now forever. The happy-go-lucky couple we'd been that would take off on a, on a Friday and, and take an overnight trip somewhere, that wasn't gonna happen ever again. Go try some new restaurant on a, on a whim, no, that wouldn't happen either. There's something about change that brings stress, even if longed for, yearned for change, that causes us to worry, to be filled with anxiety. That's why Isaiah says to us, preachers, say to your people, those with hearts racing, do not fear. Be strong. Do not fear. Sometimes, though, it's just very, very difficult. There's a a marvelous story in Mark chapter 5 about a man whose name was Legion. He said to Jesus, my name is Legion because I have many demons. This man was typically found naked with chains hanging off of his his wrists and his ankles. You see, the people, in order to try to protect him from himself and to protect themselves from this man who was overwhelmed with all these demons, they would try to chain him to a tree or to a rock. But with this surge of adrenaline he would experience all the time, he would be able to break free from those chains. He was a frightening sight. And by the way, let me be clear about demon possession in antiquity. The kind of issues that we would name as, as physical or emotional or spiritual or or mental were things that in antiquity they blamed on demon possession. Whatever it is that's going on with this man, Jesus looks at him with love, but the man looks at Jesus and declares, do not torment me. What an unusual thing to say. Peter Steinke, who's a very good church consultant, uses this story to help churches consider change He asks out loud, why is he saying, do not torment me? Wouldn't you think it would be better for him to say to Jesus, free me, set me free? He seems to know who Jesus is, to recognize who Jesus is. Rather than saying, don't torment me, why not say, free me? Stanky argues that the man has become wedded to his chains. The man has become wedded to his afflictions, to his diseases, to his issues as a way of avoiding responsibility for the way to live his life does that ever happen in our lives do we sometimes hold tightly to our treasured disease as a way of avoiding giving ourselves to the world giving ourselves to a loved one in need he tells another story in his book this one comes from world war one it's about an a, a, a artillery commander who cannot understand why all of his cannons, which are lined up on this ridge in support of the troops in battle, won't fire at a, at a more rapid pace. He watches and he studies and he can't figure out what's going on. The, the soldiers, the team of two or three who would arm the weapon would go to it, open it up, uh, arm it, prepare it to be fired, and then step back and stand at attention for one, two, three seconds. This is the strangest thing. he'd try to get them out of this routine, and they'd, they would say, "Yes, sir," but they would just fall right back into it. He, he couldn't understand what was going on. So finally, he, he made a slow-motion film. This is in World War I. made a slow-motion film of all these artillery units doing this. He studied it and he still couldn't figure out what the problem was. Finally, he invited a friend, one with two decades of experience as a commander of artillery units, to come and watch the film. He watched it carefully, observed what was happening. And then said, oh, I know what they're doing. After they load and prepare the weapon, they're standing back and they're holding the horses. Holding the horses? There's no horses. No, he said, but your cannons are 20 years old. When they first came into use, we had to use horses to put the cannon in place. Now we use trucks but the men have been so ingrained in their training to be sure and step back and hold the horse to keep the horse from bolting and running when the cannon is fired that they're still doing it and they're not even thinking about it. I wonder, how many of us, how many of you are still holding horses that no longer exist? How many of us are still holding on to grudges, anxieties, guilts that we no longer need to hang on to? How many of us are stuck in the past, unable to move fully into the present and the future that God has set before us? How many of us? You know, Jesus, was an amazing preacher and teacher. In many ways, his preaching parallels that of Isaiah. He declares a new thing. He declares that change is coming. He declares that, that God is going to do a new thing. In fact, at one point in Luke chapter 4, in his very first sermon, he quotes another passage from Isaiah that says the blind will see and the lame will walk. And at, at another point in Matthew chapter 11, he says to his cousin John the Baptist, you know Isaiah 35 is coming true. The blind see, the lame walk, the hungry are fed. Those who were lame are now leaping. Where there was no way, there is now a highway. It's called God's way, a holy way. It's an amazing thing. I, Jesus was, was a human being, fully alive. He embodied, he embodied God, God's very self. When, Jesus, when people heard Jesus preaching, they heard a new word spoken with an authority that went beyond the authority of the, of the religious leaders and the, the Roman rulers. He spoke with the authority of the everyday person. And they knew when they heard him speak that he was calling on them to make a way where there's been no way to find their way finally, finally, to home. Jesus' invitation is clear for you and for me to see that the presence and the Spirit of God is here Even now, your life might be roiled and and rambled and filled with all kinds of change and and unsettling. We've all been there. Haven't we been in the pandemic? We're just barely seeming to come out of it. Every time it seems like we're finally out of it, something else happens again in our world. And yet the promise from Isaiah, the instruction that he gives to us preachers, is to remind us that we can stand firm and tall when God is present among us. And finally make our way that holy way. Uh, By the way, on Thursday, I I included a little joke here in my first draft. It's Yahweh or no way. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. I thought it was a terrible joke. Where there's no way, there's now a holy way to make our way to home. Julie and I were home for Thanksgiving. No, we didn't travel to the little town of Stanfield, Oregon, population 612 when Julie lived there where she grew up on a small farm. It's a beautiful town, it's a beautiful place. Her brother Steve still lives there, has a small farm himself. We liked being there, but that's not where we went. We didn't go to my home either of San Francisco, population slightly more than Stanfield, Oregon. We loved the Bay Area, lived several years of our lives, or our married lives there, many friends and connections and things to do. But no, we, we didn't go there either. We, we went to Kansas City, but it wasn't home at Kansas City itself. It was a moment on Thanksgiving night when we sat together with our boys, Stephen and Nate and his girlfriend, Amber, for a beautiful, frankly, luxurious meal. It was amazing. But more than the food and the wine and the rest was the way we laughed and loved and argued and just enjoyed each other's company so much. And and even the argument was a beautiful thing. Nate and Steven got into some tense, I mean, not tense, but it was kind of fun argument about this video game, and it was great watching them kind of like watching a great tennis match go back and forth over the value or not value of this video game which I've totally forgotten about and don't want to think about ever again. I just love watching the moment. And then we ate enough dessert, probably for 15 people. And yes, we indulged, but in that whole three-hour time together, where were we? We were home. We were home. Our world is rapidly changing. rapidly changing things are happening beyond our understanding almost every day every moment of every day it seems as though it's just overwhelming but the ancient word of isaiah the beautiful word of jesus and the word proclaimed on this day is that god is there in the midst of the chaos of the change of whatever is happening in your life and in mine And Isaiah says to us to say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear, amen.